what does it mean to be blessed? Like to really flourish and thrive. What is true blessing and how do we get it? That's what our psalm is about this morning. And so some might think, well, if I could just win the lottery, like not a little scratch off, but like mega millions, right? Then I'd be able to solve all of my immediate financial problems. I could even help people. And then I'd really thrive and flourish. Have you ever noticed that the people who actually do win it big, there's always this mysterious, weird downfall that happens to them? Like, you can Google it online and find story after story, event after event, that you're just like, no way, couldn't have happened, right? It seems like in their fortune and winning, they become unfortunate. Story after story, people who waste it all or have unfortunate events befall them. Some people, when they think about blessing, think, well, the universe has all this blessing out there, and it's just waiting to bless you. And the way that you tap into that is by dreaming positively and living today like it's already true. And eventually, the universe will look down on you, see all your dreaming, and pour down blessings. Some people think that it's self-determination and hard work that's the path to flourishing, right? It all depends on you. And if you want it, just put your head down, work hard to secure it. Some people go, man, it's not about materialism. It's about relationships, right? Relationships are the path to flourishing. So I think if I could just get married or if I could just find my soulmate, the one, then I'd be complete and happy. At that point, I could say, I am blessed. And the problem with each of these is that there's like a tiny layer of of truth in there There's a thread of truth that makes it sound like it's right, and yet it lacks the fullness of truth and grace, mainly because it lacks God. It has disordered priorities. It it makes the wrong thing the primary pursuit of your life. See, each one of those takes good gifts from God and makes them the pursuit of blessing instead of the blessing of pursuing the gift giver. Our psalm this morning, 128, is going to help us in several ways. First, it's going to help define for us what true blessing is. It's even going to tell us how to get it and who's eligible to receive that kind of blessing from God. Psalm 128 this morning is going to teach us about the principles of flourishing. It's going to teach us about the promises of flourishing. And finally, at the end, we'll see a prayer of flourishing. Let's look at verse 1 together. We'll have the words on the screen as well. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Now, we need to stop there and do some work because there's two words in this verse that are hard for us to understand given our modern ears. And the first word is blessed or blessed. It's a Hebrew word, asherah, and it's where we get the name asher, which means blessed one. The word blessed, it's hard for us to understand because nobody talks like that anymore. Or if they do, it often comes like with this cheesy, Christianese sounding voice that almost sounds like they've been brainwashed. I don't know if you've ever met one of those kind of people. And so like when you say, man, how are you? They're like, oh, I'm, I'm blessed, you know? And you're like, what planet are you living on? 
It's also a word that's been hijacked by this group of people that we call the prosperity gospel who preach that if you'll just give all your money to God, then he is obligated to bless you now because what God really wants to do is give you your best life now. They teach you that God's whole program actually revolves around you. See, God is just looking to bless you. So if you look around and don't see blessing, The problem is you. You're not praying enough. You're not reading enough. You're not doing enough. You're certainly not giving enough. Right? And that's simply not what the Bible teaches. Now, the word blessing, we can't simply translate it as happiness or happy. Because happy is too thin of a word to capture the richness of this Hebrew word. So I want to offer today a translation of flourish as the best way to understand what Psalm 128 wants us to see this morning. So if we translate it that way, it would sound like this. Flourishing is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. So what do I mean by flourishing? Flourishing is actually an invitation to life as it was meant to be, to the good and the true and the beautiful life. It's an invitation for your mind to actually reconsider what is good and true and beautiful. It's an invitation to see reality the way God sees it. It's an invitation to have your heart formed and shaped and directed by God so that you actually begin to desire the things that he desires. See, we tend to think of blessing as a result of something we do, like a a formula or something that's mechanical. Let me give you a picture of this. We think of blessing like a cosmic vending machine, okay? If I just put in the right combination of nickels and dimes and quarters, then I get my blessing snack, right? Or we think if I just put in my quarter and turn the knob to the right, then I'll get the little prize that comes out. But when you think of blessing, don't think formula. Think invitation, It's an invitation to a relationship with the living God from whom all blessing and flourishings flow. See, that's what it means to be blessed. It means to flourish and thrive. It's to experience the fulfillment of your deepest longings that lead to true life, real meaning, and fulfilling purpose. Blessing is more than just the circumstances going your way. It's more than things and stuff and elaborate vacations, relationships, status, fame, power, the career of your dreams. All those things are good, but they aren't what it really means to be blessed. They're not the source of blessing, and they're certainly not the sum total of what it means to be blessed by God. To flourish means you come alive as God pours his life into you and he opens your eyes to see him for all that he is. And when his life, because he is life itself, when his life is animating and pouring into you, you will flourish. So how do we get there? Okay, the next phrase that we need help with is the fear of the Lord. We saw it as we were reading the passage, right? The concept of fearing God often trips up people because we confuse reverent fear with terrified fear. Our culture has almost completely lost that side of the definition of the word. See, here's what it means to fear the Lord. It means to hold him in the highest regard as the sovereign one who is all-powerful and in total control. 
When you have that kind of reverent fear, you have a respect for him. You know that there's a reality about him that you can't just disregard. The fear of the Lord is not an emotional retreat from God. The fear of the Lord is actually meant to drive you towards him. See, while God is absolutely powerful and sovereign and holy and just, he's also at the same time perfectly loving, gracious, and merciful. Let me say it this way. If he, was, if he wasn't just and he was only love, right? If God was just a God of love and not a God of justice, you would actually need to stay away from him. You know why? Because he'd be unfair. He wouldn't stand for anything. He would lack integrity and you couldn't trust him to take care of sin and evil. But if he was only just and not loving, You'd also need to stay away from him. Why? He'd be far too harsh, and there'd be no grace and mercy for the repentant. His perfection would never allow for the unlovely like me to come near to him. But this is where the gospel is good news to us, because he's both just and loving. And because of that, he is a safe refuge for the broken. He is a strong tower against evil, And he is a father to orphans like you and me. If you read through the Old Testament, and I highly encourage you to do so, you will see this refrain come up over and over and over. It starts in Exodus, and it's sung throughout every book of the Old Testament. And it says this, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means just clear the guilty. He won't sweep sin under the rug. He won't turn a blind eye towards evil. And we're going to talk later about how it's possible that God could be both just and loving. But for now, I want us to sit in that tension and focus on the fear of the Lord, which draws us to him. It's an acknowledgement that he is God and I am not. That God is central and I am not. That God is powerful and in control. Guess what? I am not. He's perfectly loving, perfectly just, and I am not. It's to not take him for granted. It's to act and speak like God is holy and just. He's all-knowing and watching. It's to actually orient your whole life to God's ways rather than your own way. It means to fundamentally entrust your whole life and future to him. See, our text says that those who fear the Lord will walk in his ways. That means you actually know his word, you know his ways, and you seek to obey it. His words, scripture, becomes like honey on the lips and fuel for your fire. The fear of the Lord will produce in you a humility that longs to listen and obey and follow him. Now, when we take that definition of blessing and we take that definition of what it means to fear the Lord, let's put them together. Psalm 128 says, Fred, that those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways, blessing and flourishing is promised. Now, notice it didn't say blessed is everyone right? It says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. It doesn't say, blessed are those with an above average IQ. 
It doesn't say, blessed are those who are good looking or those who come from good families. It doesn't say, blessed are those who live in Chestnut Hill. Or for my Dallas folks, that's Highland Park. Okay? The blessing is for those who fear God. Full stop. Anyone who fears the Lord has access to his blessing. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Let us cultivate that holy fear of God, which is the essence of all true religion. The fear of reverence, of dread to offend, of anxiety to please, of entire submission and obedience. This fear of the Lord is the fit fountain of holy living. We look in vain for holiness apart from it. None but those who fear the Lord will ever walk in his ways. If you want to walk in his ways, it begins with a fear of him. And walking in his ways is the only right response when you come to that place where you realize who he is. This idea of walking is a powerful way to understand living your life. The wisdom literature of the Bible uh, will present these two paths to you. If you read through the book of Proverbs, it'll say that life is really like two pathways. Everyone walks on one or the other. One pathway leads to life, and the other one leads to death. And it says that those who are blessed, who fear God, walk on the well-lit path of righteousness that leads all the way to life. And there's this other path for the cursed who don't fear God, who walk on this dark, crooked, and lonely path that leads to death. It's one or the other. See, fearing God is not a bumper sticker or a one-liner or a Twitter status. It requires a deep and profound understanding of who God is with a desire for godly action. The blessing of 128 is for those who genuinely fear God and walk in his ways, not for those who just merely say they fear God but don't walk in his ways. What we say with our mouth needs to be backed up by our actions. So maybe you're asking, okay, what does it look like to walk in his ways? Let me give you a few things. Um, I wrote down seven of them. These are just going to be real quick. First off, there's a genuine desire to cultivate a relationship with him. Like you want to know him. Number two, there's a hunger. And I chose that word why, for a reason. There's a hunger to know and obey his word. Like you know how you feel when you haven't eaten all day? Just that drive to like, I've got to get something. Hunger. That's how we should see his word. That your, number three, your deepest sense of who you are is connected to him. He becomes your identity. So that primarily, more than anything else, you don't think of yourself as, as your career. You don't think of yourself as a father, as a husband, as a mother, as a uh, wife. You think, I am a child of God. That is who I am. Number four, you trust him and serve him. Not perfectly, that's not what we're talking about, but there is, your life is characterized by trusting him and serving him. Number five, you're serious about putting sin to death. You don't think about it as something that you're going to maintain. You are seeking, how can I end this? How can I put this to death? Number six, you're serious about cultivating spiritual disciplines that lead to life. So prayer and scripture reading Fellowship with your brothers and sisters becomes a pursuit. And number seven, you care about God's mission and purpose. If you put all of those things together, that's a great list to go. That's what I want my life to look like. Now, I want to be honest. I'm the pastor of this church, 
And when I typed up that list, it like hit me like a ton of bricks. I realized there's things on this list that I need to be more serious about. So what about you? Where do you see on that list a place for increased seriousness and repentance as you walk in his ways? We'll put those seven things in the weekly sync this week so that you can write them down, okay? Psalm 128 teaches us this principle that flourishing begins when we fear the Lord and we connect our life to him. Flourishing is connecting one's life to the true source of life, God himself. So that's the principle of flourishing. Now let's look at the next couple verses to see the promises, the blessings that come to those who fear the Lord. Look with me at verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of your labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. It will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. And your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. See, verses 2 through 4 outline some of the promises of flourishing for those who fear the Lord and walk in his ways. I don't think it's an exhaustive and comprehensive list, but what I love about this psalm is that the promises of blessing here are not extravagant or elaborate, are they? This psalm elevates what's often denigrated or downplayed in our world. It is upholding for us the quiet, the ordinary, the everyday stuff of life as this is the blessing from God. It begins at the center. It focuses on this right relationship with God. And then it starts to work outward into the everyday realities of your life. Now, I want to say at the start of this section that rewards for following God's plans are not guarantees or, or, or uh, pat uh, promises. Rather, they represent the best route to that desired conclusion. See, the wisdom literature and the Psalms, they like to highlight the ideal so that we see it kind of in its fullest expression. But at the same time, when we put it into comparison with the rest of Scripture, we know that we live in a fallen world, right? So not all of that is going to come to fruition. The Bible is not oblivious to the fact that Christ's followers, those who fear God, do not lead perfect lives. This Psalm is not pretending that God-fearing families are perfect and that everything always goes perfect for them. Live for five minutes, and you know, that's true. But what it is doing is it's advocating for and inviting us into a relationship with God where life does tend to flourish. Even in seasons of suffering, did you know that those who fear the Lord can say, truly, I am blessed. Even in a season of suffering, I am flourishing. See, when you have God and you're connected to life itself, even seasons of suffering are not wasted. There is blessing in the pain. There's triumph through the tragedy. And because of the gospel, beauty rises from ashes. So yes, there will be times when the faithful will be in need and experience loss. But those who fear God will know a kind of flourishing that endures despite the present circumstance. See, what we need to see this morning is that there's a difference between surface experience and deep experience. Let me explain. There's going to be times in life when you're walking rightly with God, things are going well, you're, you're actually like on point with your Bible reading plan, you're praying, you feel like conversation with God is just kind of this ongoing thing, your times in the Word are rich and not dry, you're going to feel like, man, I am in a place where I am near to God. 
and things will be going well until they don't, right? Things are going to go wrong. Maybe it's physical pain. Perhaps it's sickness or an accident. You're going to experience financial loss. A major appliance in your house is just going to stop working one day. You're going to lose your job. You're going to be betrayed by close friends. You're going to experience real loss in this life, genuine suffering. And on the surface, experience might tell you, man, this psalm is a lie. Like, I, I fear the Lord, and I'm close to him, and why is all this bad stuff happening to me? You aren't being blessed right now, even though you're walking with the Lord, and you feel like you're close to him. However, deeper experience will tell you that blessing and flourishing is not always circumstantial or surface level. When you've lived through suffering, and I, and I don't mean just minor things. I mean, when you have lived through profound suffering as a believer, you realize the deeper experience that God met you in that season in a way that doesn't happen on the surface. Because in times of suffering, our hearts are more open. They're more exposed. They're more vulnerable, aren't they? But when God meets you in that place where you're hurting, where you're suffering, a deeper trust, a deeper love, and a deeper nearness is established. And here is the crazy thing. On the back end of that suffering, you will start to speak about it as a blessing. It's crazy. It sounds so counterintuitive. Maybe it's not a blessing you would have chosen, but it's a blessing that now on the other end of it, you wouldn't trade. I mean, how many, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have experienced that? I'm seeing nods because people who've walked with God know that he does something in those places in a deeper way that you just wouldn't trade. At the same time, the psalm is telling us saying, on the whole, life does work out better for those who live according to his design. As verses 2 through 4 explain, we will be blessed and flourish and experience life to the full in a fallen world where the effects of the fall are mitigated. That's essentially what's going on. We've got this rich relationship with God. We begin to enjoy the fruit of honest labor and meaningful relationships with others. See, back in the garden, when sin entered into the world, all that was basic in life became cursed. If you go back and read Genesis 3, you basically see this, this curse unfold. That relationship between God and humanity now is strained. Relationship between men and women and your everyday relationships become strained. Even the relationship between humanity and the ground becomes strained. All of it was cursed. Sin affects everything. Nothing escapes the tyranny of sin's destructive path, nothing. And being blessed at this kind of flourishing where you experience blessing instead of the curse of living in a fallen world. Another way to think about it is being blessed by God, by those who fear him, is that he is intervening in and pulling back some of the effects of the curse. So here we see blessing in our work. Because of sin, our work is hard and toilsome. Genesis 3 talks about how thorns and thistles will try to choke out good crops. So what this means is business deals go sour, cutbacks happen, downturns in the economy cause joblessness and 401ks to decline. 
You can work and work and work every day, and you'll struggle to find meaning in the work. But for those who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways, God intervenes and gives purpose and meaning and flourishing and thriving to our work. He causes the work of our hands to be fruitful. And in that fruitfulness, it actually blesses other people. And this psalm encourages us to even enjoy the fruit of our work. So that we go to bed, when we go to bed, we put our head on the pillow with dignity for having worked. And we're going to bed tired for all of the right reasons. See, with God, nearly every single job can have a redemptive purpose. And part of his plan uh, for common grace given to all is that he would work through our work, right? So with intentionality, our jobs can be places of great joy and gospel good. See, work has always actually been a part of God's plan. It's not a result of the fall. It's just that work becomes harder. But it's always been God's plan that we would work. We're not promised blessing by idleness or laziness. But for those who fear the Lord, our hard work and honest labor is made to flourish despite the fact that it's sown in the ground of cursed soil. He intervenes and causes it to flourish. More often than not, God's plan to provide your daily bread is through your daily labor. This verse actually also speaks about enjoying the fruit of that labor, which is an implicit argument against overworking. You can work so much that you never actually enjoy the things that God is causing to flourish. Another promise of flourishing in Psalm 128 is the family. Fruitful and meaningful marriages. Again, the horticultural language here of a fruitful vine pairs really well with the language of flourishing, doesn't it? When the, where the curse drives us towards independence and selfishness, the blessing of marriage drives us towards interdependence and self-giving love. Marriages are a gift from God to be enjoyed. They're sacred unions that are, be, that are to be cherished and protected. They provide companionship and are one of God's primary ways to sanctify us, or another way to say that word is making us fit for God's purposes. And as those marriages thrive, the fruitfulness of that marriage overflows into the blessing of children who grow up strong and resilient. In this metaphor, children are compared to olive shoots. And I don't know if we have any olive farmers in here, but olive shoots were known to be quick to re-sprout after being pruned. Kids are resilient like that, right? Knock them down, they get right back up. This describes children who thrive under the wise and guided hand of a skilled gardener. And so parents are to cultivate their children to see them thrive so that God is working in subtle and obvious ways to see them flourish. He's painting the picture of an ideal life filled with abundance and fruitfulness. That's the blessing that's offered to those who fear the Lord. Now, if you remember from our psalm last week in 127, we talked a lot about marriage and family and children, so I don't want to rehash everything that we talked about that uh, last week. But I also want to reiterate something that I did say last week. If everything I just described has not been your story, I don't want you to automatically think that God hates you or that he's not pleased with you, okay? I know plenty of holy, God-fearing Christians who walk in his ways, and guess what? Marriage just hasn't worked out for them. Children has not 
worked out for them. Meaningful career paths have not worked out for them. I know plenty of Christians who love God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength, who are models to me, who've not seen the blessings of children and marriage and family and work work out like it looks like in this picture. So I want you to hear me. If your life has not looked like the ideal, I don't want you to think it's because of something you've done or something you've not done. We have to remember this is not advocating a formula. And more often than not, most of us can describe areas where we do not experience the ideal. Right? If fruitful work, marriage, or children have not played out for you, it is okay to recognize that there is real loss there and there's real hurt there. Regardless of the specifics, here's what I know. Take that to God. Talk to him about it. He is a safe place to bring your deepest fears, your deepest longings. And if you'd love someone to process that with, if you'd love someone to sit down and talk about that, I am available to do that. One of my greatest joys and privileges of getting to be a full-time pastor here is that I have time to spend with you. And I would love to talk about your specifics and what was going on here. And if there's places of hurt, we can cry together. We can pray together. We can talk together about um, where uh, things have not worked out um, in your life. But know this, God loves you. And no matter what blessings we've not experienced here in this life, God has a good reason that we simply just don't know right now. See, when I can't understand or I can't put all together what God is doing, I hold on to the truth that I do know, that he loves us and that he is for us and that good is working out for those who know and fear him. See, last week I also said one of the reasons why I love the church is because it's a family and we can experience the blessings of intimate friendships and meaningful relationships. It's in this covenant family that we can be adoptive and surrogate mothers and fathers to children and those younger in the faith. I did not grow up in a Christian home, but because of the family of God, I have been blessed by many men and women in the church who became spiritual moms and dads to me when I became a Christian as a teenager. The church has provided more meaningful brothers and sisters in Christ than my biological family ever did. And so what this means is that this church becomes a family of redemption that God can bless to live out some of these blessings of what it means to follow him. All of this is described as the promise of blessings for those who fear God. So you notice there were no yachts, no downtown penthouses, right? The blessings of God are simple and beautiful everyday realities where we find life and meaning and purpose in the everyday stuff of life. Let's look at the last couple verses and see the final prayer. Verse five, the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children and may peace be upon Israel. See, these last two verses are actually a prayer. The psalmist is asking God for a blessing from Zion. Now, if you've been with us, you, you know we've experienced this word Zion several times. Remember, Mount Zion was the highest place in Jerusalem, and it was the mountain on which the temple was built. Now, if you've ever been to Colorado or seen a real mountain, you would never look at Zion and call it a mountain. The elevation is 2,500 feet. It's like a glorified hill. But... 
The reason why it had glory was because the temple was there. God's presence dwelt there. So Zion became this powerful symbol where God's presence lived. And so it's natural for the psalmist to look to Zion, God's dwelling place for blessings, right? Because that's where God is. And so we're looking to Zion, asking that from Zion, blessings would flow down, that God would open up the floodgates and let blessings flow down from Zion. So he begins praying for prosperity for the whole city and a long life where you grow old to even see your great-grandchildren. And what I love about this is that those who fear the Lord are invited to look for and ask for God's blessing. And because we're his children, we can continue to ask him to be generous and and graciously provide. Did you know there's nothing presumptuous about asking God to bless the work of your hands, to bless your family, as long as we have grateful hearts and genuine hearts that desire him above his gifts. So if Zion was the heart of Jerusalem and the place of God's dwelling place in ancient, ancient Israel, it begs us to ask today, ask, uh, where is God's presence today? Where is his dwelling place? Where has he decided that the heart and the center and the glory of his presence will dwell today? The answer is the church. We are the people of God, and the Bible says that the church is God's temple now. Do you remember how we define church in our membership series? The church is the beloved and redeemed people of God, filled with the presence of God, set apart for the purposes of God in the world. And as we pray this prayer today, we are praying and asking God to pour out his blessings from the new Zion, the church. See, in a world of chaos and destruction, we should be the people praying for peace. The church becomes a people who are mobilized to bring about that peace. We become ambassadors of reconciliation, looking to love, serve, and bless our community with the peace of Christ. This is what Jesus, how he taught us to pray. Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth and in Waltham, in Boston, in New England as it is in heaven. We're asking God to pour out blessings from the church. And we know as the church, that the true blessing, the ultimate blessing, did come from Zion and the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, we couldn't ascend that holy hill to the temple and bring it down ourselves. Blessing had to come down to us. And see, that's the heart of the gospel. God does not expect you to ascend his holy hill. Besides, even if you couldn't anyway, None of us are righteous and strong enough to climb their way to God. And so God had to come down to us in order for us to experience his blessing. And that's exactly the good news that we proclaim each and every single week, that the true Zion, the perfect Zion, came down to us. The Prince of Peace came down to us. And so because of Jesus, we can flourish and thrive. He was cursed so that we could be blessed. He was diminished so that we could flourish. Jesus is how the tension is perfectly held between God's justice and his holy and extravagant love. Remember that the fear of the Lord drives us towards him, not away from him. And when we come to him face to face, we realize that he is more fiercely holy than we imagined. And yet at the same time, he's more tenderly loving than we could have ever dreamed. And it's in Jesus 
that his holy wrath against sin finds justice. And it's in Jesus that his love is graciously extended to all. This is what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 26. Look with me. We'll have the words up here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, Jesus, put forth as a propitiation. That just means payment for sin by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had formerly passed over sins. Now it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what that means. The pathway to fearing God and walk in his ways begins by receiving this gift the gift of grace offered to us in Jesus Christ. It means that you humble yourself and see God as perfect and holy and that you and I, every single person in the world, has fallen short of the glory of God and we've sinned against him. It means that you recognize that your guilt and your shame have accrued a debt that you could not pay, but that God in his grace has paid that debt for you. Paul says Jesus paid it by his blood. And when you receive that gift by faith, you become justified, which just means that you're made right with him. And that sets you on the course of fearing God. That sets you on the course of walking in his ways. And that sets you on the course, puts you in the pathway of his blessing. Blessing does not come from God if you seek him like a vending machine. I love the way William Wilberforce, who was this amazing English uh, politician who was a catalyst for the abolition movement in England, he said it this way, it makes no sense to take the name of Christian and not cling to Christ. Jesus is not some magic charm to wear like a piece of jewelry we think will give us good luck. He's not your good luck charm. He is the Lord. His name is to be written on our hearts in such a powerful way that it creates within us a profound experience of his peace and a heart that is filled with his praise. That quote just sums up the whole sermon. Blessing and flourishing come as we connect to God through Christ simply to get God and then, as that dynamic relationship unfolds, he blesses those who fears his name and walk in his ways. 